0: Good evening, friends. Welcome to this divine service, this privileged opportunity that we have to meet with the Lord. We're thankful for this opportunity, for a pulpit exchange. We love you, and I had the privilege of praying for you this morning, as we try to do from time to time, and thankful for your pastor's presence in our congregation this evening. Our call to worship is from Psalm 146, 1 and 2. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord while I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Let's uh, make that commitment and prepare to fulfill it in a moment of silent prayer. Let's stand together and worship the Lord, singing number 441, Jesus' Priceless Treasure. Beloved, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come. Amen. Let's confess our faith together aloud using the words of the Apostles' Creed, saying together, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord I believe a holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated. psalm selection is number 150, number 150, a robust, all-embracing call to praise the Lord that answers all the most basic questions of worship. It answers the who of worship. If you have breath in your lungs, if you can breathe, then God has put that breath in your lungs and you should praise the Lord. It speaks of the where of worship, whether in the sanctuary or in the mighty expanse, in the heavens. Praise should come from all quarters. It answers the question of the why. We're to praise God for his mighty deeds and for his excellent greatness, for uh, the, the the things that we have heard that he has done which reveal his wondrous character and then also the how of worship which at least is demonstrated it demonstrates here the, the the skill and the energy that we should put into worship as if participants in a great orchestra with trumpet sound and harp and lyre and timbrel and so on there's there's a, a an, an emphasis on excellence and on uh, skill and Robust participation. So, uh, let us give our attention to Psalm 150, and then we'll we'll sing it together. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty expanse. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with harp and lyre. Praise Him with timbrel and dancing. Praise Him with stringed instruments and pipe. Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise him with resounding symbols. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We'll sing Selection C of 150. Let's come to God in prayer together. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. This is a wondrous calling that you have given to us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we do praise you because you have put breath in us. As you breathed breath into the first man, you've continued to give life to people so that we might offer to you the thanks and the gratitude and the recognition of of which you are so worthy. And yet we have, as your creation, even the crown of creation, have failed to worship you rightly. We grieve the false worship, the failure to worship that is so prevalent in the world. And we would be no different. We would ourselves worship the creation rather than the creator if you had not drawn our hearts to you and have and given us new life new thoughts new desires and a burning interest in your interests so we praise you lord with our strength with our heart with our mind, with our soul, with everything that we are. We recognize your mighty deeds and we praise you according to your excellent greatness. We want to praise you, Lord, both in the sanctuary as we have gathered here this evening, but also throughout the week. We want to be sacrifices of thanksgiving to you because of your boundless mercy that you have demonstrated to us. We gather before you, the all-knowing, all-powerful God. We believe that no creature is hidden from your sight. You, to whom we must give account, see everything about us. And though you see our sin, we pray, Lord, that you would look upon our merciful High Priest, Jesus, who has become the source of eternal salvation for all who obey you. And we pray that you would be satisfied with Christ on our behalf. May we press on to maturity through practice, through discipline, through your correction, becoming more and more skilled in the true spiritual life. May we be earnest to have the full assurance of hope until the very end. So preserve us in your grace and be especially compassionate toward those who have doubts and worries, uh, spiritual and otherwise. We pray for your blessing upon this congregation and through this congregation, the community in uh, in whose midst the church lives. We pray that you would bless the pastor and his family and the elders and the deacons and all of the members and the guests, those who serve, we pray that you would help them to serve with vigor and with zeal and with also a great reward. We believe that you graciously reward all those who earnestly seek you, and so we pray that we would do just that. We pray that you would bless us, Lord, as we open your word, as we consider an example from the life of the early church and what it looked like for the church to strive for peace, recognizing that we will suffer in this world. We pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear wondrous things in your word. We pray all of these things thankful for your grace and uh, seeking a revival in our land and beyond. In the name of Jesus, amen. Our offering this evening is for the Bible League. Lord, we thank you so much for this ministry that loves your word and desires to see more of your word printed and distributed in this world. We thank you so much for those who volunteer also on behalf of this ministry. We pray for an abundant gathering and a rich reward on these efforts. Bless also the deacons in their work of distribution and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm of Adoration is Psalm 100, Selection A, and we'll stand to sing. Shout to the Lord, all earth. Our scripture lesson this evening is from Acts chapter 21. We'll be reading from verse 17 to verse 36, verses 17 through 36 of Acts chapter 21. Our congregation has been studying the book of Acts for a while, a year or more, and we've been encouraged to be reminded again, uh, first of all, of what the Lord did in the days of our fathers in the early church. Um, And how the Lord is continuing to speak to us through that record and encouraging us to follow after Jesus in the hard disciplines of Christianity, uh, bolstered by the Holy Spirit as our fathers were. And so we're going to consider this evening a a, a difficulty that the early church faced in a desire to keep peace within the church and uh, how, how they thought through that and how they can help us as well. So uh, this reading picks up at the end of Paul's third missionary journey. He's been hurrying to get to Jerusalem, if possible, by Pentecost in order to participate in that feast and also to deliver to the church in Jerusalem a collection that had been gathered by the Gentile churches for their relief. So that's where we find ourselves. After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly, and the following day Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore do this, that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow, take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. Then Paul took the men and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid! This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was provoked, and the people rushed together. And taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. While they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. At once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he began asking who he was and what he had done. But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another. And when he could not find out the facts because of the uproar... He ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he got to the stairs, he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob, for the multitude of the people kept following them, shouting away with him. Amen. What does it mean to be a peacemaker? We know that it's a calling from Jesus accompanied with a blessing. We know that we should value unity. We should resist allowing differences of opinion to break spiritual fellowship, at least as much as it depends on us, as Paul says in Romans 12, verse 18. Um, But we may also know that peacemaking is complicated. It's complicated. The pursuit of unity, of course, doesn't allow us to compromise our integrity, Peacemaking isn't the same as people-pleasing, just trying to keep everybody happy at any cost. And peacemaking doesn't guarantee peace. It isn't results-driven. It doesn't always work out the way that we want. Paul's experience in Jerusalem opens our eyes to the necessity and challenges of eagerly maintaining the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace as we are commanded to do in Ephesians 4 verse 3. Um, I noticed two things from this text as we move through from the beginning of the reading toward the end. Uh, first of all, we observe this truth. Christians should work for peace. Verses uh, 17 through 26. Christians should work for peace. This was a, a burden that the early church had. Um, Remember, as I mentioned, that the missionary team of Paul and his helpers were, were had been rushing to get to Jerusalem to, uh, to worship the Lord over Pentecost, to bring this gift. And they had been warned that if they went to Jerusalem, they would face persecution. Paul had been told by the Spirit, through the prophet Agabus, that he would be bound by the Jews and turned over to the Gentiles if he went to Jerusalem. But he believed in his mission. And he believed that God could do great things in Jerusalem. After all, as verse 19 says, Paul was able to tell story after story to the Jews in Jerusalem of what God had been doing through them among the Gentiles. And so he did. He told the stories to the Jewish, uh, the, the Jewish church leaders. And the leaders glorified God for all that They heard, and surely they appreciated the offering that the Apostle Paul brought to the needy Jewish Christians from the Gentile world. But they also expressed concerns about Paul's ministry. Not so much the content of his ministry, they trusted him, they knew him, but more the public relations side of Paul's ministry. Paul had developed a very negative reputation among Jewish Christians, and then much more so Jewish non-Christians, the reputation was this, that he allegedly insisted that Jewish believers shouldn't circumcise their children or practice other traditional customs, as it's recorded in verse 21. So Paul, it is alleged, was dispensing with so many things that Jewish people uh, knew to be important. Now, we know that it isn't true, of course. We know that to the Apostle Paul um, circumcision was a matter of indifference. He stresses that in Galatians chapter 5 and chapter 6. To circumcise is nothing, to to not circumcise is nothing either. Of course, he also believed that no no one should think that circumcision completes the gospel. That, that's why Paul was so stern against the Judaizers in Galatians. Um, because they had a view of circumcision that it completed the gospel. And, And of course, we would reject that as well. The blood of Jesus doesn't need to be supplemented by more bloodletting, be it by circumcision or any other thing. Truly, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is sufficient to save all of God's children. And so Paul believed that, and he didn't have to Uh, hold on to circumcision anymore as a symbol of that which was perfected in Jesus Christ. But to say that Paul was opposed to circumcision is patently false. These charges, the reputation that Paul developed, clearly false. Paul had his own spiritual son, Timothy, circumcised in uh, Acts 16, verse 3, that's recorded. So to say that Paul was commanding people not to be circumcised, patently false. And we know that Paul respected those whose weaker consciences led them to live more circumspectly, as we read in Romans 14 and elsewhere. He says, have concern, brothers, for the, for the weaker believer, those who believe that certain things are essential. Be, be, be tender toward them. Don't run roughshod over them with your freedom. And yet, despite all of what we know to be true about Paul, the rumors ran strong. And so when Paul gets to Jerusalem and and the leaders explain the problem that he was going to face in the city because of his reputation, the church leaders, uh, James and the others, recommend, probably not strong enough a word, sort of tell Paul, here's a plan that we would like you to do. As a demonstration of Paul's appreciation of ceremonial law... He should join with four men who had taken a Nazarite vow. You can read more about the Nazarite vow in uh, Numbers chapter 6. I don't think the particulars of the vow are, are uh, uh, essential for us to understand what's happening here. And, of course, the, the, the very particulars aren't revealed. You could read about it, though, in Numbers 6. Um, the, the point is that the, the thought was, at least, that by presenting himself in the temple... For purification, according to the law of Numbers 6, that Paul could hopefully refute the claims that he was against the law and against God's holy place. So um, this wasn't a vow that Paul had to do. Uh, It wasn't essential. But the brothers said, Paul, if you do this, a thing that you may do, it, it may help your cause in reaching the Jewish people. Now, obviously, the plan didn't work as intended. But that doesn't mean it was a bad plan. We have all we have all had plans to do uh, good and reasonable things that didn't work out. Be it a project that you had and designed, and it just it didn't it didn't work out. It doesn't mean it was a bad plan. This wasn't a bad plan. Um, just because it failed, in a, in, a, in a humanly way of speaking, ethics is more about obedience than results. Just because the. Uh, the believers didn't get the results they were hoping for. Doesn't mean it was a bad plan. So what was right about the plan? How does the the plan of the Jewish church uh, commend to us the commitment that we ought to have to keep peace? Well, the overall motivation was right. Paul's reputation as an opponent of the law And of other Jewish customs hindered his ministry. And he wanted to give full course to the gospel. He didn't want unnecessary stumbling blocks. And so it was right for him to try to remove those stumbling blocks so that he could preach the gospel. And the accusations against him he knew to be false. And so Paul's love for the truth rightly inspired him to set the record straight. We have also, where possible, uh, an obligation to preserve our good name and our neighbor's good name. And so that's really what Paul is doing here, trying to refute these false claims against him so that the truth might prevail. And and further, the proposal was lawful. In other words, uh, it, it would have been... Imagine if the Jewish leaders had said to Paul, "Um, Paul, we know you've got this bad reputation. Uh, People think that you don't believe in the law or believe in the temple. So what we want you to do is we want you to bring a, a, a young goat and have that goat sacrificed as a demonstration that you believe in the sacrificial system. Well, that would have been wrong, right? That would have been an attempt to try to keep peace but by doing something that was wrong. He could no longer offer sacrifices. The true sacrifice has come. That's not what's being asked of him. He's asked, being asked to uh, uh, fulfill a Nazarite vow, a vow of dedication, a vow of commitment to the Lord that in no way conflicts with the law interpreted Christianly. And apparently the request or the requirement of the Jerusalem church didn't violate Paul's conscience. You know how important conscience is to the Apostle Paul. You should never violate your conscience, right? Because as Paul will write uh, in the book of Romans, uh, chapter uh, 14, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If, If you can't do a thing believingly, then you can't do it morally, and so Paul's not violating his conscience. He doesn't feel like this is probably wrong, but because I've been asked to do it and because it will keep the peace, I guess I better go along with something that I don't really agree with. Um, no, that's not the case either. And finally, we know from uh, an earlier chapter in Acts, chapter 18, verse 18, that Paul had taken um, an, another vow which doesn't about which few details are given. We don't know exactly. But the so point is, Paul wasn't against taking vows, similar to that in Numbers chapter 6 and what he was asked to take here. So the, there's a lot right about this effort to keep the peace. Remember, this is not trying to appease uh, the, uh, the unbelieving uh, Jewish opponents of Jesus. Because remember, the Jewish leader said to Paul, you know how many in Jerusalem have believed in Jesus? They're, they're church members. They're part of your family. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're part of our congregations. And yet there's this rift. They, they, they have this bad view of you. See if you can clear that up, brother. So Paul willingly humbled himself in an attempt to win people for God, something that he theologically will defend in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 23. And so should we. So should we. We should bear with the weaknesses of others. We should go out of our way to preserve peace. Paul says to Titus in chapter 3, verse 2, show perfect courtesy toward all people. This is a demonstration of perfect courtesy. Something that, um, in a very technical sense, wasn't owed, but it was a courtesy that Paul was, was showing. Do all of that and more to keep peace, uh, but don't, in your efforts to keep peace, neglect justice. Don't neglect justice. Don't mistake peacemaking with people-pleasing. True peacemakers have lines that they will not cross in peacemaking efforts, and those lines are drawn for them by Scripture. And that is, in fact, what Paul was doing here. He, he had a line. Clearly, there were things that he wouldn't have done, but he was willing to do this. And, and we need to have those lines that we, we will not cross. Uh, people who are constantly saying, this isn't the hill to die on, probably don't have such a hill. Probably don't. Uh, will will we'll do whatever. Whatever is asked of them to keep peace. That's not godly. We have to have those biblical lines that are drawn for us by God about which we agree with God and say, we won't cross this. We won't do the wrong thing to keep peace. We won't keep silent when we should speak up. We won't go along with uh, you know this, this family, idea that is, doesn't honor the Lord simply because we want to keep peace in the family. So we have to have these lines. And that's and, and Paul had those lines. Paul was willing, we would read in the same chapter in earlier verses, Paul was willing to die for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mentioned that the prophet Agabus came to Paul before he had gotten to Jerusalem, and, and he demonstrated, remember, by taking the belt off and binding Paul and said, so will this man be bound by the Jews and turned over to the to the Gentiles. And, and so all the believers said, Paul, don't go. Don't go to Jerusalem. We love you, brother. We don't want to see you bound and turned over to the Gentiles. They'll probably kill you. And Paul says, I'm willing to die. I'm willing to die for the name of Jesus Christ. That was Paul's line in the sand. I will respect the name of Jesus Christ. And and that is what Paul's doing here. It's actually for the sake of the name of Jesus That Paul tried to make peace with those who misunderstood him. I think this is very important. Some, not most, but a few commentators say that this was Paul's biggest blunder that he had committed by trying to go along with this plan. You know, because it failed. But, um, did it fail? It's sort of, in a certain sense, you could say it failed. but, But there's so much that we can commend about this plan. As long as what we're trying to do is honor the name of Jesus Christ. So, so Paul goes along with this plan, but I suspect that he was under no illusion that it would actually appease his opponents. Paul knew the fierceness of his critics. I mean, he, he, he might have said to himself, I, I'm just conjecturing here, but he might have said to himself, this plan's not going to work. I've been... I've been around further than you have, brothers. I, I've been I've been beat with rods. I have been imprisoned. I have been. I mean, th- these guys are not going to stop pursuing me. But you know, I'll, I'll go along with it. I I don't know. But but Paul knew that this this wasn't guaranteed to work. He knew, as we want to consider second, as we continue to work through this text, that peacemakers sometimes suffer. Peacemakers sometimes suffer. In fact, before Paul had fulfilled his vow, we read in verse 27 that Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Just think about what that means. You've got people who essentially had followed Paul from Asia in pursuit of trying to silence him from speaking the name of Jesus Christ. Here is evidence of spiritual warfare. If you're gonna follow Paul from Asia and, and try to get him arrested in the temple, there's some spiritual warfare happening. And peacemaking is in fact part of our calling as Christians, our participation in this battle. And God may use our peacemaking efforts to pacify his enemies. Right? Proverbs 15:1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath. God is true in saying that, isn't it? It surely could have been uh, under God's providence that this gentle answer by the Apostle Paul would have turned away the wrath of his opponents. Um, But it doesn't always go that way in God's providence. God may leave your opponents as hostile as ever despite your gesture of peace. We need to understand that. We're not pragmatists. We're not going to only pursue peace if it works or if we think it's got a shot of working. We need to do what's right, and leave the results to God. We need to recognize, of course, that there are people in our lives who no matter how hard we try, we cannot make happy. I say that, and you you know that, of course, you you have those experiences in your your lives. I I say that not to be discouraging, not to say, well, because they can't ever be made happy, don't even try to be a peacemaker, but just to be realistic. Don't think something strange is happening to you if you're mistreated for your peacemaking. I mean, if we we think about the ministry of Jesus Christ, was it not a peacemaking ministry? Christ came to make peace uh, between those who were near and those who were far. Jesus came as the Prince of Peace, and yet many did not receive him and mistreated him because of his peacemaking ministry. We should just expect uh, to suffer for making peace. In fact, Paul's enemies twisted the very effort of his peacemaking to strengthen their claim against him. It's incredible. You've got Paul in the the very moment of humbling himself to try to make peace, at least with the Jewish Christians. And these enemies from Asia use that against him, bringing the same old charge, here's, here's this Paul, come help us, you know, come help, he's, he's speaking against the temple and against God, and, and we think he's desecrated the temple by bringing a Gentile into it. In, in doing so, the Jews from Asia commit several errors that we should pay attention to and be sure not to commit ourselves and repent if we if we have committed these errors that these opponents of the gospel commit what do i mean by that well three things let me let me highlight for a moment in terms of the errors that the jewish opponents of the gospel commit against paul first of all they misstated they misstated so they're trying to achieve something, to silence Paul, to get something to happen, and, and, but they use falsehood. So verse 28 says, This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and against this place. Now, we know that that's false. Paul had a high regard, uh, rightly understood, for the law and for the temple. He surely was for God, not against him. But had the Jewish opponents given a more accurate summary of his position, their point would have felt less compelling. And so they misstate. They they speak falsehood in order to make what seemed to them to be a stronger argument against their opponent, Paul. But, you know, falsehood never strengthens an argument. It only detracts. It only weakens it. So what? They, but but what they do, nonetheless, is they smooth over Paul's careful theological nuance on circumcision and on the uh, the relevance of the temple and so on, and used misleading talking points that would resonate with their supporters. And it happens all the time today. You know, people people refrain from arguing against an opponent in a way that the opponent would even recognize their position. And, and use vehement, stretched, misstated statements in order to seemingly bolster their position. We need to repent of that kind of communication in the church. A second error that they commit uh, in charging Paul in the temple with this sin is that they generalized. They generalized. Did you notice the words in verse 28? This is the man... Who preaches to all men, everywhere, and and so on, right? That, that's a generalization. Um, accusations including words like all, always, only, never. Um, they're they're commonly used but rarely accurate, right? But we use them. We don't even in our even in our conflicts, our domestic conflicts, you know. Uh, a, a, a wife might say to the husband, "You're never home on time. Never, I, I've never been home on time." I mean, you see, it's an, it's generalization. Or, or a husband could say the same to his kids. You know, you're you're always making too much noise, or, or whatever the case. Those are not real significant examples, but we need to be careful and use these absolute qualifiers only when true. And then, third. They assumed, uh, the, the New American Standard says they supposed that Paul had brought the Gentile Trophimus into the temple. So they, they had this, this suspicion or this assumption and they treated it like a fact. Um, he's, he's, he's defiled the temple because they had seen him with Trophimus and assumed that he had taken him into the temple. Now, obviously, this is totally fabricated, totally false. Paul would never have been so foolish as to violate a law carrying the death penalty while trying to win the Jews' approval. Right? So, so if we understand that Paul has come into the temple to try to win the Jews' approval to some sense, in, in some sense, why would he take a Gentile into the temple? Right, the the Jewish uh, there, there were warnings in the in the temple saying a person who brings a Gentile in is liable to his own death. So obviously false. Um, and and this is the case often when we assume or suppose the the word that Luke uses here for supposed is used about fifteen times in the New Testament, and almost without exception, it describes a false. Assumption. What Luke is suggesting by using this word is that assuming is highly risky. It betrays um, a a bias on the part of the one assuming uh, something that they want to be so, at least for the sake of the argument. But that bias prejudices us against the truth. Christians should never. Suppose the worst, apart from fact. Because love, we're told in 1 Corinthians 13, 7, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, Paul isn't saying, therefore love makes you gullible and ignorant and you just have to go around and and always expecting the best. No, he's saying, assume the best until proven wrong. Right? Expect. Uh, the best uh, of other people. So you're you're meeting a friend for uh, lunch and the friend is late and we right away start thinking, oh, you know, some friend didn't, uh, you know, her schedule is more important than my schedule or, or whatever it might be. Well, no, we shouldn't do that. We should we should expect the best of the person. The person maybe got stuck in the snow or maybe it was rescuing a child from a burning house, or you know, some, assume something happy, assume something positive, have right thoughts about people before we jump to the worst possible scenarios. Ask, and if we have to discern in the, the, the case, we should ask non-leading, non-interrogating questions that help us truly understand others. Imagine how different this narrative would have been if the Jews from Asia, who had made these charges against Paul, had instead gone up to Paul and said, um, you know Paul we saw you earlier with a gentile named Trophimus we know who he is we saw him with you did you bring him into the temple and Paul would have said no brothers i didn't do that and they would have said oh okay <laughs> and That's that's it you know you, you don't you don't assume you don't you know you don't rally your your side because of a false scenario that way apologize for false assumptions so some bad some, ba- some exa- example here of really bad, poor, ungodly communication. The charges against Paul are false, but but reinforced by unethical smear tactics, the argument moved the crowd. Agabus's prophecy came true. Paul was bound by the Jews and delivered into the hands of the Gentiles. Now what Agabus didn't, Make plain, be, perhaps because he didn't have all of the information revealed to him yet, is that in God's providence, the Roman Gentiles, into whose hands the Jews turn Paul over, actually rescue him. Isn't that something? When you, when you, if you go back to verse eleven of chapter twenty-one, and Agabus gives this, this doom and gloom prophecy, Uh, Paul's going to be bound by the Jews, surrendered to the Gentiles. Everything seems like it's going to be the worst. And yet when the Gentiles have Paul, it's because they've rescued him. Wonderful providence of God. By human calculations, Paul's peacemaking efforts backfired. But God is right there, providentially caring for his beloved child. The last words of the text... Uh, show that Paul was right where he should be. Perhaps when you hear, uh, when you heard these words from verse 36, away with him, it reminded you of a similar cry from a very nearby location some 27 years previous. These are the words that Jesus heard as well from his opponents. Away with him. He isn't fit to live. And now the Apostle Paul, bearing the marks of Christ on his body and having the love for his Savior in his heart, hears these same words, away with him. And Paul knows, I must be in the right place. I must be on the right track, following the Lord's will. Jesus came to earth to make peace between God and sinners. Our peace came through his cross. Sadly, not everyone received him. But John says this in John one twelve: To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Children of God. As children of God, we are secure. We don't have to cower before the opinions of others, pleasing people wrongly. And we don't have to be afraid of making uh, attempts to, to to make peace, that they might backfire, because we're held in the hands of our Heavenly Father. Secured in God's hands, we can make peace no matter the cost. And brothers and sisters, that's what God is calling us to do here. Reflect upon his care of us. Believe that God blesses peacemakers, as Jesus said in Matthew 6 verse 9, and that Jesus has shed his blood to secure that blessing. Blessed are the peacemakers, not only when the peacemaking attempts seem to work, but blessed are you peacemakers, because you have received the blessing of Jesus Christ from the cross, and that's why you're making peace, because you're following in the footsteps of your Savior. Let's do that with God's help. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord, we thank you so much for coming into this world to be our peace, to cancel the hostility between ourselves and a holy, holy, holy God. And we pray that we too would be Come more and more the peacemakers that would image you well. Deliver us from fear of people and consequences. Give us convictions that we will stand upon. And give us the great goal of living for your glory and a heart that desires to fulfill that goal. We love you because you loved us first. Help us to show that in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our hymn of adoration uh, is uh, a portion of the Beatitudes. We'll sing just verses 1, 7, and 8. 1, 7, and 8 of 464 standing to sing.